What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album and the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and this is Meet Meep, where this week a legend meeps amongst us. Reese Fulber, a mainstay of the Roadrunner canon and an icon of my CD player, joins me to talk about Frontline Assembly and their landmark one-and-done for Roadrunner, Millennium. This record was a bold new direction for the noteworthy duo as they steered their starship from the more traditional electronic sounds to the more modern industrial metal they helped pioneer. Throughout the interview, you'll hear us refer to someone named Devin. This is, of course, a young rookie Devin Townsend of Strapping Young Lad fame, whose contribution and skill is a big part of this story. We talk about how the partnership came to be with the Big Bird, what caused them to initially link up with Fear Factory, and other never-before-heard news and notes. Well, at least I'd never heard them, and I'm always listening. Here's Reese. I mean, there's a trajectory with those records, if you listen carefully enough. So Hardwired is not that removed. I mean, the reason I know is because we didn't tour on Millennium, but we toured on Hardwired. And the crowd we had on Hardwired was totally different than the crowd we had on the previous tour. So the Millennium thing was, was you know, definitely there when we, I mean, we hit the road for hardwired in 95 and you know especially in like in the uk we had like we had twice the size of our crowds and and a lot of them were you know people from more the metal side of things suddenly and you know in in america as well we we when we did our u.s hardwire tour with decrups it was like we had some really good shows and definitely roadrunner had expanded our audience for sure well, you start off on Third Mind Records and go over to Roadrunner with the acquisition of that. And yeah, Third Third Mind was a very small, like you know, homespun operation by uh, a guy named Gary Levermore, who was really involved in the original industrial underground art scene of the '80s in the UK. He was putting out all these like highly regarded cassette compilations like highly regarded in that underground and and bill from frontline he was always really he you know when i first met bill he was still in skinny puppy and you know bill had the record collection you know he had all the good stuff you know he had all the underground stuff he had he just was the man he he knew all about that music and that scene and and so he knew these guys because in you know i think the metal scene a little later was similar with the tape trading that that that's kind of what used to go on back then so he knew a lot of these guys and then he wanted to start putting out his own records once he quit skinny puppy and and that's how we knew gary and then he started putting out records with gary and then things started growing and then gary somehow got involved with roadrunner who were interested in what he was doing and acquired his label and his the roster Bill had already been working with Wax Tracks. They had already done... So we... You know, stuff was already kind of going on with Frontline. So, you know, the Roadrunner thing was like the next step. I mean, was, Wax Tracks was already pretty happening in America, like 1989, when the first stuff via Third Mind went licensed to Wax Tracks in the United States. And so we got on that train with our first tour, and that was pretty pretty happening in America. Like, I remember that. Is it coincidental or cause and effect that you come to Roadrunner and that's when the 
experimentation with more metallic sounds come or was that already an idea you guys had and the roadrunner no it, it's all connected i think but I, I i can tell you this is it wasn't coming from me the millennium <laughs> concept was actually bill people think it's me it wasn't me it was bill kind of what happened is we come over to i'm trying to remember when i guess it was like around 91 91 92 Late 90, because we still were with doing stuff with wax tracks in 1991. And then the tactical neural implant, which was, you know, one of our, I guess, more regarded records that came out. That came out in 1992. And that was when the Roadrunner shift occurred. Because I did a promotion tour, which I'd never done one of those before. That So it was like we we're suddenly in a more professional environment. And that was all Roadrunner. So Tactical Neural Implant was Third Mind Roadrunner in 1992. And I went to Europe and I did like a promotion trip, which was something we'd never done before. And then, you know, we did, I even did 120 Minutes MTV with Paul King. And it was like, wow, this is happening. Like, this is like more professional now. We're like moving up in the world a little bit. Then like about a year later is when the Fear Factory remixes happened. And you know, I also, years later, signed to a publishing deal with a company called Zomba, which was also Jive Records, which put out all the boy bands and pop and all this other stuff. But they had a, quite a big network of stuff. But Roadrunner and, and Zomba were similar in the way that they were very much in-house oriented companies. They look within. So when Fear Factory wanted to, you know, do industrial remixes, they probably threw some big names out there and Roadrunner were like, Hey, we we have guys that already do that in house, you know, so let's get them to do it. Right. And that's where the fear is a mind killer thing came up. And, you know, that was around the time I started becoming a little more interested in, in, I mean, I always knew some underground metal, you know, I was into punk and then industrial. I've always been into fringe music, you know, so when I was quite young, my father played in punk bands. And I mean, I was 10 years old. I used to go watch DOA rehearse because they lived down the street, you know, and I was like a little kid, you know. And in the 80s, punk and metal, you know, those it was a bit like oil you know, and water, you know, they didn't really fit together very well. And then suddenly I remember like I remember when Metallica first came to Vancouver and it was at the New York Theater where, you know, I later saw Skinny Puppy and all these other bands and stuff. And I remember being, hey, this is like a metal band, but they also got a punk crowd. And that's sort of when that kind of thing started happening. So I started kind of, you know, I knew about Slayer. I knew about Metallica. And, and you know, the, I like some of that music. I think when we were on tour in England in like 91, guys that were into frontline industrial music were talking about grindcore and these new scenes that were developing. So I started becoming a little more aware of that stuff. And then we did the Fear Factory remix. And. I started getting into more of that scene and stuff like that. And then, you know, those Fear Factory remixes started, they started getting some play, you know, people started picking up on it. Because I remember where we did Fear is the Mind Killer, the rehearsal room that we had because we had some botched European tour and we had all this gear sitting in this room. And that was where we did Fear is the Mind Killer in this rehearsal room. And I just had a sampler set up on a road case. <laughs> and a computer and i remember doing it in there and then we actually here's some fun facts we mixed fears the mind killer at brian adams's house now he has a commercial studio in downtown vancouver so basically he was planning on building the commercial studio for years and years and years and in the meantime he had a studio set up in the basement of his house in west vancouver and we used to mix everything in commercial studios in those days it was, you know, the technology wasn't where it is now. And so we heard, oh, Brian's, you know, you can get his place for a good deal because it's just in the basement of his house. Keep in mind that Adams was never there. He lived in London most of the time. So he was never at the house. Not like we all hung out or anything. But we we mixed Fears of Mind Killer. That was the first thing we did at the Brian Adams warehouse. Uh, it's called the warehouse now. Back then it was just... Um, you know, it, it was his house, basically. And so that's where we did Fear is the Mind Killer. And then after that, we were working. 
on what was going to be our follow-up to tactical neural implant, which actually ended up being really almost like synth pop, like really melodic, really electronic. And like we were going, like we weren't going harder. We were kind of going, yeah, almost synth pop, I guess you could say. And I think somewhere along the line, Bill said, I don't think this is what we should be doing. I think we should do this. And because we had signed to Roadrunner, they sent us all these CDs. So we had a box of Roadrunner CDs. And, you know, we'd never really listened to death metal and that's that much before. I mean, Fear Factory opened our eyes a little bit, but we didn't really know that much about it. And they sent us all these CDs. And then Bill suddenly comes in with this idea, goes, hey, why don't we sample a couple of these riffs? This would be really cool. Let's do something different. Right. And then that's that's where it started, you know. And then Roadrunner made sure it was cool for us to use these samples and contacted the, the, you know, the sources involved. I mean, like we were so naive and stupid, like we sampled some really dumb, obvious riffs because we just didn't know any better because we weren't up to speed on metal yet. You know, it was all kind of new for us. So sampling like a Pantera riff, which seems kind of, you know, kind of boneheaded now, <laughs> but at the time. We didn't know. We just go, hey, that's really cool. That has a great rhythm. That'll fit with the track really well. And then we just did it, you know, and then Sepultura and all that stuff. So that's kind of where Millennium sort of started. And then we sampled a couple riffs that we wouldn't be able to get cleared. And then that's when the idea came to get Devin in after the Fear Factory remixes. I met him somewhere and then we became friends and then we were like, we got a couple riffs that we can't really clear. Maybe we can have you play a modified version of them. And that's when Devin came to the Armory Studios, um, which is a beautiful studio in Vancouver. We did Obsolete uh, by Fear Factory at as well. And so Devin came in and replayed some of the riffs on Millennium. Was the budget for Millennium considerably higher than what you were working with with Third Mind because you're on this larger label that's investing in you so oh, much yeah. so that they wired a record label to, to sign you? He well, you should see what the Armory Studio looks like. It's a world-class studio. I mean, they did like ACDC and Van Halen did Balance there. And it's a beautiful studio. So, yeah, we're, we got more money to spend. We bought all this gear, tons of gear. We had a room full of gear, like synthesizers, all this shit. Shit we didn't totally need, you know. It, we, it, it bogged us all down a little bit. Like the, the extra money might have bogged it down to some extent. But yeah, Millennium was our most expensive record by far. But most of it was spent on the studio. I mean, Costa Grip was not a big budget record. Costa Grip, we had to mix the whole record in eight days at a place called Vancouver Studios where Queensryche were loading in to do Empires when we are trying to finish before nine in the morning when they're supposed to start. We've been in there all <laughs> night. So Costa Grip... Granted, we did it in a nice studio on a beautiful SSL console, but it wasn't big budget. We had to do it all really quickly and use every second we were in that studio. So Costa Grip wasn't a big budget. Tactical neural implant was a little bigger, but not nothing crazy. You know, again, we had to use our studio time wisely. Um, Millennium, we definitely had some money to spend. And again, all of it went on the studio and an absurd amount of equipment we didn't exactly need. You know, keep in mind, we also threw away an entire album. So Millennium is the rewrite. I call Millennium our major label record because in some extent, it's Frontline's major label record. Even though, you know, Roadrunner's an indie, the, the way we were behaving was a little more major label-like, right? So. Well, the way Roadrunner's behaving in 94, 95 is a little more major label too, in your defense. So that makes sense. Yeah, no one appreciated it. I have to tell you, no one appreciated it. I think... I think we did to some extent, but like none of the Roadrunner bands, all, all the bands used to complain about Roadrunner. And I used to be like, look where we are right now. <laughs> you know, we're in this big studio. It's like, I, and I, I tell you, everyone misses them now. I can tell you that. Like, you know, I miss those days. Those were great times. But, you know, I, I think the 90s, everything started getting excessive in the music business. Like people really started throwing cash around, you know. So people would like, you know, somehow think, you know, Roadrunner is this because these other guys I know got signed to a bigger label. But I mean, the thing that 
I think musicians often forget is it's all your money in the end. You know, you're going to be billed back for every every dime. I've never gotten a royalty off Millennium because Millennium never made the money back. Millennium was also much to the confusion and dismay of hardcore frontline fans, many of whom didn't really like Millennium because it was something different, was our biggest selling record. And you have just come off having what would arguably be your biggest hit with Mind Phaser off of Tactical Neural Impact, yeah. right? Yeah, well, see, a lot of people, like, when Millennium came out, like, people were pissed off. <laughs> you know, like, you were like, what the hell is this? But you both seem kind of like punk rock uh, ethics type of people that that would fuel you to want to do it even more. Am I wrong in thinking that? That you were like, yeah, this is, we're challenging our audience, so this is cool. No, I, no, I don't think we even ever really thought that way. We just did what we thought would be cool. I think Bill was like, you know what? You know, the way things are going right now is a little more guitar tinged. Let's do something current. Let's, let's, you know, keep moving forward. And I also think in hindsight, the record that we had been working on was really melodic, synthy, tons of chord changes. And I, I feel like maybe deep down, Bill was unsure how to even write vocals for it, you know, because it's like, it was such a change to what we were doing. It was like, almost like our prog record or something. It was like tons of yeah modulations and chord changes and stuff. So, you know, Bill's good like that. Bill, Bill like has the perspective where he walks into the room and I got all this shit going on. He's like, oh, okay, this is getting out of hand. <laughs> so, so I think he, he, you know, I think Bill's wanted to do something simpler, harder, more current sounding. And that's what, that's how Millennium started. And by the way, Devin's guitar on Vigilante, let's talk about that for a second. I think it's one of the best guitar tones. I've worked on a lot of metal records and there's something about that guitar tone. It's just, oh man, it's really good. I really like that sound. And I haven't even heard that sound on any of his records. So I think that sound was unique to that song. I remember the amp and the guitar he had and it was like completely unique to that track. And I love that guitar tone and it's, you know, Devin's such a great player. I mean, he's so tight and, you know, it was a Mesa Boogie 50 caliber and an ESP Hetfield Explorer guitar. But none of that makes any difference if you don't have the touch that he has. So you have the samples of these songs and you mentioned that kind of the reason why they're the songs you chose to sample are you, they're just kind of your first uh, impressions of these records, this box of records that you've gotten, because Vulgar Display of Power, that you sample on here pretty heavily, is fairly new. So I, I thought you guys were just fingers on the pulse of pop culture, but you uh, just didn't know that it was, I guess, Well, said. the way Frontline would work a lot of times is Bill would come in with material he wanted to sample, and then I would sample and cut it up. So all of those samples came from Bill. Bill would take CDs home, he would watch movies, he, he, that's sort of what Bill does in Frontline. He comes up with, with concepts and sources, brings them to the studio. I put them into the machines and start turning it into a track, and then we trade off riffs. That's pretty much how we were working back then. So, And then I do an arrangement, and then he writes some vocals. So that was just all those riffs Bill brought in and said, hey, I like this. Let's sample this. And then I'd sample it, put it in the Akai sampler, and build something out of it and then you know bill throw down a bass line i'd throw down some chords and that's how we would build all those tunes so i i didn't i never even listened to that pantera album i had no <laughs> idea bill just brought it in and people assume that was all me right <laughs> so i guess because um, you went on to do so many you know uh hard rock involved yeah. things and bill is mainly known i think at this point in his career for frontline whereas you have this kind of uh well that all wash. came later and then you know we build up all the tunes and then we the way we used to work was we would have everything programmed out on the samplers and the um, old atari computer and then we would when we figured we were ready and bill had all his lyrics together then we would go into a commercial studio with all our machines and hook everything up and synchronize it to a tape machine record some of the things to the tape machine so we could keep everything running what we call sort of live and sync off the computers so you can still be making changes but we would put like all the bass and drums and everything onto the tape machine like you're recording a real band and that way we would have the bells and whistles would be you know the samplers would be free to add other touches and stuff like that and then we would record the vocals 
So Millennium is also all recorded to analog tape. Oh, wow. Because that's how we made all our records at that time. We would take all our gear into the studio and it would all go onto two-inch tape, which is what gives those records uh, the sound that they have. You mentioned Devin's tone on Vigilante, which is, like you said, it's awesome. And you kind of already touched on, I guess he was brought in afterwards, because I did wonder why, if you had this live guitarist that sounds so sick, why you would even use the samples. Um, but I guess you had already used the samples, and then when you couldn't clear them, that's when you bring Devin in to kind of interpolate whatever you were trying to imitate? Sort of. I don't know if I want, I don't know if I can go into detail, but that's sort of, in a nutshell, okay. basically. <laughs> in, in a nutshell, that's basically what it is. And then we had, we had a couple songs that we even had no guitar samples on. We didn't have any guitar samples on those at all. They were just, they were actually more of the electronic songs left over from the session we sort of threw most away. We had a few songs, like there's a few songs on that record that we kept from our original session, like This Faith and Search and Destroy were left over from the album we threw away. And then we added guitar to Search and Destroy so it would fit with the rest of the record a little bit more to balance it out so it didn't stick out. And then This Faith we pretty much left as it was, which is sort of the ballady song, and there's no guitar in that. And that is more like what all the material we had been writing before sounded like. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there are any of the songs from that original session made two. its way on. Those so. two. Those two. This Faith and Search and Destroy are left from the original sessions. People like mention, oh, you sampled this from this movie. And I don't even know because I would literally just have the dat tape of audio. So I didn't even know. Like, I, Bill would say, oh, I watched x movie last night i recorded some bits and that would be the extent i would just be listening to the dat tape and finding pieces i liked i wouldn't have seen the movie you know so i'm sampling stuff from movies i haven't seen so it's a little bit of that going on yeah that makes sense i guess like with a a standard you know five piece band if a member of the band came in with lyrics or a guitar riff or something you wouldn't be researching where they got the inspiration from no, it, it, Bill would just say, I got some stuff, and I'd be like, All right, let's go through it. Most of the movie samples on Frontline, I didn't know the movie, or I hadn't seen the movie. I just was going through the audio. Where did the idea for having rapping on Victor of a Crimin- Victim of a Criminal come in? You know, I'm trying to remember where that came from. I think, again, I think it came from just us wanting to do different stuff, you know? And I think the track we had put this track together and i think we sort of almost were like this has got like a bit of a hip-hop edge maybe we should try and get like you know a rap or something just just we honestly we just were trying to trying different stuff and then there was these guys that were signed to network which was a label we were also close to which we ended up putting our delirium stuff on and also our our um our studio that we did all our writing in was right next to their office and then they, they said, well, we got these kind of guys that sort of do this alternative hip hop. Maybe you can use those guys. And so that's where that came from. It was just us trying to do different stuff. We weren't like trying to piss people off. We weren't trying to do anything purposeful, you know, to annoy people or, or you know, we're just like, you know, we like Public Enemy. We like Schooly D. We like, you know, we, we like all kinds of different stuff. Right. So we were just trying it. Yeah, the rapping on Victim of a Criminal sounds very much like uh, Public Enemy, very a la, you know. Well, the, the guy was from a group called Power, P, was abbreviated P-O-W-E-R. And they were, you know, they were one of those kind of, you know, I guess you could call it woke before it was a thing, you know. Yeah, I think they used to call that like conscious rap. You were conscious yeah, it was, you. you know, and they were cool guys, too. I, I can't remember if they were from Seattle or. They, they came up from um, somewhere in the U.S. I, I don't think it was far. They were from the Northwest. I, I, I believe it was Seattle. And uh, also, we like kind of knew the, there was a band called Consolidated from Seattle who were kind of more connected to the industrial scene. But they were also kind of part of that as well, like uh, with rapping and but on, you know, a little closer to the industrial world. And so I feel like those guys were somehow connected to them or something like that, if I remember correctly. There are a couple of B-sides on the singles for Millennium, for the, both the song Millennium and Surface Patterns, uh, Internal Combustion and Trans Time. Were those either of those uh, from those original sessions or those were Millennium? I don't think they're from those original sessions. 
I think those might have been written when we were doing all the Millennium stuff and they just ended up being more electronic because they don't sound like that other material. Uh, Dave McKean does the cover of Millennium, also does Obsolete and did the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. Oh, yeah. Who's whose wife also signed to Roadrunner Records later on with Dresden Dolls. Were you a fan of Sandman? No, I had no idea what it was. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea what it was. (laughs) It's funny Um, because Dave did a lot of covers for Roadrunner. He did Burn My Eyes for Machine Head, which I know you did some remixes for. He did Obsolete, and he did this. And uh, whenever I ask people, if because I was really into Sandman, so I always think it's so cool that Dave did these covers, and nobody seems to really... It seems like maybe they were like assigned to him or something. I, you like. know, honestly, I'm I can't exactly remember how Dave got into our world because you know he did a great job. I don't exactly remember. I'm assuming Roadrunner were like, "Hey, we know this guy, this great artist in England. We'd like him to do your artwork." If I remember correctly, that is where it came from because I don't think it came from us. So it must have come from Roadrunner. And the Millennium artwork was was really, I mean, it was really cool. It, it's a little similar to the record he did for Alice Cooper, actually. Why was it the only album that you did with Roadrunner after, uh, you know, such a big deal of being made to bring you to Roadrunner with the acquisition of Third Mind? And like you said, it's a kind of a big budget project, especially for Frontline. So why does it end up being the only record? Probably because it lost them too much money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think that's what it was. I, I think... I think we spent a lot of money on Millennium. It did okay, but I don't think it did enough to justify the money and, and whatever was put into it. And, and I think it maybe just didn't make sense to continue working with them at the time. You know, because Bill used to do a lot of more of the business side of the band. So I don't quite remember how that went down. An educated guess would be that they weren't going to give us much for the follow-up. And then we thought, well, maybe we can get a better deal if we move on. And I think that I, there was no animosity or anything. It was just like, I think they didn't want us to keep racking up a big tab. I, I think Bill and Doug Kehoe used to butt heads a lot. And Doug was like, I think, the managing director of the New York office. And they would have a lot of disagreements about how things should be handled and how things should proceed. Well, that makes sense. There wouldn't have been, you know, animosity, like you said, because you, of course, continue to work with Roadrunner for years. Oh, Roadrunner. Yeah. Roadrunner kept me, you know, pretty employed for (laughs) (laughs) for quite a while. And then and then, you know, of course, after Millennium, you know, you know what happens there. Demanufacture comes out and. We didn't do a tour on the record, and I think that goes back to what I was just saying with Doug. Another issue with Roadrunner and Frontline was I think there were elements of Roadrunner that didn't understand a band like us, especially when it came to touring, because Roadrunner were used to guys that would get in a van and go out and do their thing. And, you know, Frontline, we always wanted to have a show. We wanted to have video. We wanted to have all this shit. And it costs money. And I think Roadrunner were like, uh, what's the point of this? And we're like, well, this is kind of our thing. And this is sort of what makes our shows what they are. And I, I think that was another part of it. I think they were used to, you know, obituary or something who sell a lot of records and, you know, don't need all this stuff going on on stage. So I think they didn't understand like, well, why do you need all this? We don't get this, you know? I think that was also part of the reason why, you know, if we would have been selling maybe a bunch more records, there would have been no discussion. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but we weren't selling quite enough records for Roadrunner to justify the production that we wanted. Uh, because up until that point, we somehow found a way to make it work. And then we get on a bigger label and they're like, uh, why are we doing this? You know, so it was sort of like, I think that was part of it. And and I say that with no, you know, resentment or of any kind. But I think it was just like, they didn't fully understand what we were doing. And and I also think like Frontline's not this, the kind of band you can just throw on any tour and stuff like that. So I think that had a lot to do with it. They weren't quite sure how to fit us into their system. 
I think it sounded like a good idea at first. And then <laughs> it was like, well, you know, we can't, we can't go on a package tour with like, you know, DSI or, you know, whatever. Right. But so imagine I if think... you would have, what a tour that would have been. <laughs> but I mean, I think that was part of it was they, they just didn't quite understand how we wanted to do things or why we wanted to do things that way. Is there anything in retrospect you would have done differently with making the millennium album? I don't think so. I, I don't think, um, I mean, I don't really like the walk sample on surface patterns, but the 12 inch version where we had the guitar redone, I think it's one of the best things we've ever done. Yeah. The um, thing with sampling walk is just because it's what like you kind of touched on earlier. It's just such an identifiable. Yeah, we didn't know. Right. right. But on the other side, because you sample Pantera on other songs and you wouldn't know, you know, like listening to those other songs, I don't know that it's a new level because it doesn't have like the, the main refrain from that song, but walk is just, you got that, you know, everybody knows that. Song yeah. I mean, that, that was just pure naive. Like we just didn't know, but there's a 12, there's a single release of surface patterns with the remix on it. I think that's one of the best things Frontline's ever done. The production, everything. It's the vocals, the whole deal. Like that is one of my favorite things we did. So that's the byproduct of that. It's like we were learning as we were going. Because I think when it was time to, when they're like, let's do a single of surface patterns. I think we were like, yeah, let's go change it. Let's get rid of that sample. Let's redo this how it should have been done. And so we were kind of learning as we were going, you know. And I think like, you know, I think that track there, if we would have had that all kind of more aligned, I think we would have had a really an even better record, you know, but like we were still learning while we were doing it. And you think that Hardwired is a, a natural follow up to Millennium? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because what, what I mean, Hardwired is almost like a compromise for our audience to some extent. It's like, well, we like the guitar shit. But we'll put some more electronics back in so no one loses their mind. So <laughs> hardwired is like but at the same time it wasn't as contrived as I just made it sound. It was it was still more of an and Devin's on hardwired as well, playing guitar on that. We brought him back. Yeah, he's on a bunch of songs on the record actually. But yeah, I think hardwired is I think Millennium has like catchier songs, but hardwired the production is more figured out. Six of one, half a dozen of the other, you know, because it's like we were still figuring out the formula on Millennium. And then by the time we got to Hardwired, we kind of had the formula way more figured out. And then after that tour, I, I left the band. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> The thing about Hardwired for me is I actually do think it's a better album than Millennium. But Millennium is my favorite frontline album, just probably because I have the romance of being the first thing I ever heard from you. And, you know, uh, I didn't know about the albums before Millennium. So as far as I was concerned, you know, you were... Like a new band. band yeah yeah well i think i think millennium has like the songs i think are better like the actual songs but i think the way it's put together is better on hardware the uh the music video for the song millennium did you have oh any... god <laughs> <laughs> so you'd have the mind phaser video which of course is not only your biggest single up to that point maybe of all frontlines discography but also you are much acclaimed for the music video for that song. Oh, the video of my phaser was completely bananas. And a friend of Bill's and a friend of the band Skinny Puppy, this guy named Gary Smith, who has been in the film industry forever. And he, he's, he was for years trying to get funding to make a horror movie. And actually clips of the trailer he made are in the video we have for a song called Virus. So we already, you know, we had that connection. And so Gary came to us because we make a new music video. And Gary's like, hey, I got this. There's this film in Japan that's like not going to come out here. Or and I have like they, they said I could use, you know, scenes from the, 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 the film and and all this stuff. And it was like, wow, that's fantastic. And and then so we kind of shot a few things and they kind of pieced it all together and. So, and then it became what it was. And then somewhere down the line, I don't know what happened, but someone was like, wait a minute, well, this isn't the right licensing or something. And then it became this weird, like, you know, thing that's out there if you find it, you, you know, you know what I mean? Because there is some licensing issues. Can't, you know, it was probably Matt. La one guy probably said yes. And then three years later, some other guy came in and went, I didn't know about this. And, you know, it's typical show business nonsense. Right. 
So that's how the Mind Phaser video came together and made it what it was. Um, the Millennium video was actually made by H Gun in Chicago, who you know made a lot of the wax tracks videos, videos for ministry. They made Jesus Christ pose for Soundgarden. Really good. They do really good work, and they were the ones that got contracted to do the Millennium video. But I don't know what happened. That video. Eh. I think what happened was H Gun had a lot of these ambitious ideas. But then we didn't have enough budget to make it all like really come together. So the whole video is like this weird compromise of, of some sorts. And, you know, I went to Chicago and we were like way out in some industrial wasteland in South Chicago by these enormous abandoned warehouses. It's, it's quite amazing to see that much decaying infrastructure in, in any first world nation. You know? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that's where we made the video. And, you know, the ideas when I was there all seemed really cool, but it, I just, it, you know, and then we shot Bill in Seattle. Bill didn't show up in Chicago. I can't remember what happened. It was, something went down. So there was some drama. He didn't show up? He doesn't like, Yeah, he didn't coming. come to Chicago, and I can't remember why. There was something going on there. And so everybody was like, where's Bill? And I go, I, I didn't know what to say. There, there was some drama going on. I can't remember what it was. So I'm not going to, I'm sure there's an explanation for it, but I can't give it because, you know, I'm not Bill. And Bill ended up being shot separately in Seattle. But in a way, it kind of all makes sense in the video. What is your favorite memory of making this album? Is it being in that big studio? Is it the learning experience that you had just working with that kind of, uh, you know, sounds and equipment? Well, definitely, that was the first record we made at the Armory, which is a studio I ended up working in a lot after that. So that studio is, is you know, it's an incredible studio. So that was part of it, working in that studio. Honestly, when Devin came in to play that Vigilante guitar, that was like, that was really cool. It was just such a good sound. And it was just like, just the energy of that moment was something I always remember fondly. You know, I mean, Devin's such a fantastic musician. And when, when you're lucky enough to have, you know, great players like that in a room on something you're working on, it just makes everything, you know, that much more memorable. That was a cool moment. Yeah, I just think that was like the first record where we really thought like we're making a big production record, you know, because I still think Millennium is one of the best produced frontline records, like as far as sound and production. Did you do any production work on the actual nail bomb album or just perform no. live with them no i'm only on the live thing that okay. that's something people i don't think yeah the thing with nail bomb was alex and max that record was already done you know and i think gloria or somebody called me and said hey we need a live keyboardist for this nail bomb gig and i like yeah i'm there and you know i got treated really really well by those people like first class you know I, I i went down to phoenix uh alex showed me all the songs i sampled all the parts got everything prepped and then we went and did that one insane gig and then we did a warm-up gig the night before at a small club in eindhoven actually and then we did the big gig on the big stage which to be honest is aged better because I remember the gig not going as smoothly as it appears on the video. There seemed to be a lot of technical problems when we were on stage. A lot of people couldn't hear each other. Max's guitar kept cutting out. I don't know if that's somehow been salvaged on that video, but the video seems a lot smoother than I remember the actual gig. I remember the actual gig had a lot of issues. So I'm not sure. Maybe they fixed some of the audio or something, because what I remember standing on stage and what that video is, it's definitely an improvement of my memory. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's good though, right? You have this uh, this historical document. Oh, the uh, archive is is like I remember being on stage and being holy shit, that's a lot of people. And then like, why is this happening now? Like, I remember Max's guitar. You know, you play festivals, shit happens. You know, There's, you got bands coming on and off stage all day. I mean, it's it's hard to have everything run perfectly. You know. So there was just technical problems. Like I, I just remember guitars were cutting out. Uh, they weren't in the monitors. So there was just lots of little things. And, and those, when, when those things are happening, they're really distracting. Luckily, not for me. I had no issues. I just had my one wedge. I had all my samples. I played everything where I was supposed to. So, but I remember other people were having some issues. But 
somehow on the video you don't really get that sense so i guess that's a good thing the archive is 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 i think better than the actual event but that was such a great weekend that was like the peak of roadrunner like roadrunner was an awesome family and and people used to complain and you know typo negative used to always trash roadrunner and you know i met pete he's a nice guy and everything i couldn't understand what everyone's issue was because roadrunner was the family it was great you go in the office everyone's wearing t-shirts of all the different bands and it's like it felt so happening and everyone was into it you know now you go into a major label office no one gives a crap you know you go into roadrunner everyone's a fan everyone's stoked everyone comes out to the shows it was awesome you know i go to you know i used to live in netherlands and my girlfriend at the time you know actually worked at the label and so I would go to the subsequent Dynamo festivals after, and we'd just go stand in the Roadrunner tent and drink free beer all weekend. I mean, it was awesome, <laughs> you know? It was, like, it was super cool, you know? Everyone was super nice. Everyone was, like, had a sense of community, and you know, I, I miss the way those things used to be. It was, you know, like, joking around with Monty Connor all the time, and, and then Howie Abrams is the one that got me into Zomba later, because Howie told Zomba to sign me to a publishing deal, and Howie brought me into that awesome family, and so... It was like it was just really cool, you know. It was just like a really, really cool time, and it was a sense of community. And bands didn't talk shit about each other. Everybody was kind of in it together, and it was very cool. How I miss Howie. He was a great guy. I mean, like he, 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 you know, he was always forward thinking. You know, he was very hip, and and um, he brought me into Zamba. Zamba were grooming me to be a film composer. Zamba wanted me to do Britney Spears tracks, and I didn't think they were serious, and I never sent him any. And, like, you know, because the Britney Spears moment was what I was saying about Roadrunner, is Zamba would look within. They would go, okay, we want to do a more hard electro-pop version of Britney Spears. Who do we have on our roster? Oh, we got this guy who did Frontline Assembly. Let's bring this guy in. And they bring me out to New York, and I have a meeting about it. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, this isn't real. You know, there's no way they're serious. And I never sent him any tunes. And then years later, I hear a song called Peace of Me. And I'm like, oh, shit, I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what I was saying about Zamba is also uh, was a family like Roadrunner was. They would look within before they would look out. They would look within. OK, who do we have in our system that we can get to do what we need before we go out outside our our, our zone it, it was very it was like sports teams that use their farm system rather than free agents <laughs> so well you kind of have your i mean I, I feel like this sounds probably to other people disrespectful but i'm a big britney spears fan but you have a kind of a britney spears moment with the the sarah mclaughlin song with the uh, delirium yeah that's a total fluke kind of thing because it was the remix that well, actually, not necessarily. The album version is in the Broke Down Palace movie, so that was kind of good. But, I mean, that song was just a song, you know. We were on the same label as Sarah. We just made a song. The label, You know, like, well, maybe we can get her to sing on a song because we're all on the same label. We're all in the same community. And she just came in and threw down a vocal, and we were just sort of nonchalant. It's just going to be an album track. We had no designs on that becoming a big thing. Yeah, it was just another tune on the album. And then so you didn't make yeah. that with Sarah in mind. You made it. And then you, afterwards you were like, oh, I wonder if we could get Sarah McLaughlin. Exactly. We just had a tune. We just had a track. And we thought maybe this needs vocals or maybe maybe a market network can see if Sarah can sing on. And at first, Sarah didn't even like the tune. She's like, yeah, I don't know. There's nothing really here for me, you know, because it's not the type of writing that she is normally singing on. It's repetitive and a little more, you know, simplistic musically. She couldn't get inspired by it. And then suddenly we're mixing the song as an instrumental at the studio. We're like, all right, fine. We'll just do it as an instrumental. And then she comes down to the studio and goes, Hey, I got something. And we're like, set up a mic. Okay, go for it. And she threw it all down really quickly. I remember she was like, Oh, I, I want to change some of these chords. And we're like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. <laughs> we're not really set up for that. We just, <laughs> <laughs> well, present day, you just recently put out the resolve EP, which is a instrumental kind of ambient soundscape type of deal tell me about that when the uh you know i was locked down in california when they had like the stay-at-home order and everything and i'm just sitting at home with my kid you know and i'm like oh i'll just work on some music and, <laughs> and that there it is <laughs> so, <laughs> okay well, there you go and it, you know because i've been working on sort of techno stuff a lot lately but 
you know, there's no clubs, there's none of that culture going on. So I just was like, I mean, one of those tunes, two of those tunes actually I already had. Um, the disused one I actually did for the dystopia record, but I didn't, I couldn't fit it into the album. But so I just kind of added a few more things to it. And then I'm like, I kind of like this direction. I'm going to do a couple more tunes like this. And then, yeah, I just started getting into the more ambient kind of droney stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I've been working on so much music this whole year. And that was one of the first things I kind of finished, you know, I was like, I want to make something um, that's just maybe a little different from what I've been doing and go back into like this ambient soundscape route that I had done some stuff in in the past and I really enjoyed it. It just felt right at the time and, you know, it's like good pandemic tunes, you know. I was going to say, it sounds like the soundtrack to 2020. It sounds like the world is ending at some point. It sounds like it's uh, starting over again, nice and bright. So I, I think it's really cool. And I even the picture of the cover I took of an abandoned Macy's. So it's all <laughs> okay. where I was living in L.A. There's like a giant Macy's that's abandoned. And you're like, this is weird. It all kind of ties together, you know. The 90s Roadrunner time, it was just great. I, I you know, I was such fond, I have such fond memories of that time and all the people that worked at Roadrunner. And I, I even had my Case Vessels moment, which was really cool. Well, what's your Case Vessels moment? Oh, there, there's like a music, there used to be this music um, convention in uh, a music industry convention in Germany called Popcom. It was like a big convention, you know, where all the European label people would be. And so I was standing in the Popcom Roadrunner booth drinking beer, free Roadrunner beer, <laughs> which was always something nice because you're in Europe. And Case comes up to me. I've never talked to Case before. And he just goes, hey, great job on Demanufacture. I love what you did with that. It was great. Oh, man, thanks a lot. And that was it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it was a cool moment. You know, I got acknowledged. And, and it's always nice when you get acknowledged by the higher up, you know. They know they appreciate what you did. And that was a cool moment. It's just uh, he was, I, th- I don't think he talked a lot. He, was, he always seemed like I've seen Case around, you know. But I never saw him talking a lot, you know, but you'd see him, you know. And that was one of the few times he came up to me and said something. I think it was the only time he came up to me and said something. <laughs> I, I think the only other times where I, that someone would open an office door and say, oh, there's the boss in there. And I would see him and just go, hey, and then keep walking, you know. So that was the only time I think I exchanged words with Case. But it was a cool moment. And it shows you what a cool company it is that the top dog would acknowledge the Fear Factory record because – you know, Fear Factor was a good band for them, but it definitely, you know, the big bands were Sepultura and things like that, right? So it was cool. Yeah, not only aware, acknowledging that band, but acknowledging your involvement in that record, which is, you know, almost... Uh... Yeah, he knew who I was. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm standing there, and he, yeah, it was really cool. You know, I appreciate all those kind of things. I never take anything for granted, you know, so, so that, was, that was a very, very cool moment. Another thing that I did for Roadrunner that... It's like on Spotify, you, you know, usually all the remixes I've done are coming up on Spotify, but two of them aren't. And I did two remixes for Rob Zombie. Those were like the second last things I did for Roadrunner. I, Mars Needs Women EP, two of those remixes are mine. Jesus Frankenstein and Sick Bubblegum. The two remixes, I did those for Roadrunner because he hated Skrillex remixes. So they wanted different remixes. I like Skrillex. So I'm not saying it as any kind. I like what he does. I think he's really talented. But Rob Zombie didn't like them. So they're like, we need some different remixes. Can you do two remixes for Rob Zombie? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But I have no credit for them anywhere, which bugs me a little bit because I put a lot of work into them. So Sick Bubblegum and Jesus Frankenstein on the Mars Needs Women EP are both my remixes. And they were both done for Roadrunner. And and then, you know, I did the Scar the Martyr record after that. And I actually was working with a Roadrunner band called Contra Cult that was turning into something cool. But I think Roadrunner just let them go. I like working on music like that. I like when someone just sends me their song and I kind of just add my thing to it and it just floats out there. It's kind of cool. I actually did that on a Rob Thomas song called Little Wonders. 
Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20 and hit single yeah. smooth fan. I, I, I did some keyboards and some stuff on one of his tunes, and it's just cool. You know, I, go, I went to a supermarket one time, and I heard it, and I, I could hear my keyboards. And I'm like, ah, that's fucking cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift to live off the, the arts. It's an absolute privilege, and I don't understand why you would be angry about that. It, it makes no sense to me. It, it's like every day of my life, I'm, oh, man, I'm lucky. I, look what I, I, I get to make music for a living. This is all I do. You know, I, ever since I quit Starbucks when I was 19, this is all I've done. <laughs> and it's, 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 that's all I wanted to do. When I used to work at Starbucks, Kevin from Skinny Puppy would come in. I'd give him a free coffee, and I used to go, that's what I want to be. I just want to do what Kevin does. He's just the Skinny Puppy guy. You know, not like be a giant rock star or anything, but just be in a band, and that's all you do. I thought, that's what I want to do. So sick. And if that wasn't enough reads for you, stay tuned for an upcoming episode about Fear Factory's milestone album, Demanufacture, coming soon. But while you wait, you can listen to the new EP entitled Resolve we mentioned by going on Instagram and following the show at Meet Meet Pod. Share this episode and tag me to let you know you did, and five lucky Meepsters will win a free digital download. And if it's free, then it's for me. But if you want to pay... Go to Reese Fulber, R-H-Y-S-F-U-L-B-E-R dot bandcamp.com. Next episode, we have the quirky power pop of the band Lazy and their album Some Assembly Required. And it's a good thing it's required because the Coyote Corner will be Chris McCarthy of Internal Bleeding further discussing Frontline Assembly and their impact on his life. If you thought this episode rocked as much as I did, then let me know on Apple Podcasts when you leave a five-star review. And hey, let your friends know. Let at least one friend know. Otherwise, they might start to doubt your friendship. But I am your best friend, Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meet. And yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye. Friday, October 30th, Long Island's hardest smashing and metallic thrashing band, Good Fight Music recording artist Extinction AD, releases a five-song EP entitled It's About Time That We Had a Change, paying homage to influential 80s American hardcore punk bands, Dead Kennedys, Adolescents, DRI, DC's Youth Brigade, and TSOL. Head to extinctionad.bandcamp.com Friday, October 30th to get your digital copy of the EP and hear the ultra-heavy takes on these classic bands' absolute bangers. This comes just in time to raise your rebellious spirit in this tumultuous modern world. Get that next stretch before you bang your head and clear your surroundings for the ultimate circle pit mayhem and go to extinctionad.bandcamp.com Friday, October 30th to get your copy of It's About Time That We Had a Change by Extinction AD.